This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to Jurassic Park, directed by Steven Spielberg, starring Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and Jeff Goldblum. However, quickly, before we get to the show, next week we are doing our first revisit episode of the show. That's right, a revisit episode, as Dana has requested one for Back to the Future, starring Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Crispin Glover, and Leah Thompson. You won't want to miss that one, so check out realgood.com or the Real Good app to find where that's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D.com. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter either by the website, the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Additionally, did you know that our website has the full notes for every episode of the show, as well as the master list of movies we've created so far? That's right. There are links in the episode descriptions of every episode to direct you right there. Check them out. And as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. With that, we welcome a new guest to the show, founder of Film Reframed and a filmmaker in his own right, Roman Martinez. Welcome to the show, Roman. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Really glad to be here. We're glad to have you. Uh, With all new guests to the show, we like to ask a few questions to allow the audience to get to know you. So first, just tell us a little about yourself, what you do, and why you love movies. Oh, of course. Well, I'm a director and a storyboard artist here in Los Angeles, and I'm a composition and visual storytelling expert, which is why I founded Film Reframed. I love movies because I really feel that they give significance and meaning to what would otherwise be seemingly randomized experiences in our life. I think organizing the things that happen to us as humans into a story that has symbolic meaning really helps us to understand our own life experience and the life experience of others. So I really love movies because they do that and allow us to uh, understand the experiences that other people have in their lives. You know, we get to see places we'd never otherwise see uh, if it weren't for movies. And it really just expands our scope of what's possible and does so in a very satisfying and beautiful way. Well said. Absolutely. So then what is your favorite movie and why? Oh, it's a very hard question, but one that I keep coming back to uh, recently is the movie The Wrestler by Darren Aronofsky. And what I love about it personally, you know, it is very much executed at the top of its form, but I love that it explores the complexity of how we define ourselves as people and what we do when we're no longer able to do that thing that makes us feel meaningful. So in the case of The Wrestler, when he is diagnosed with a heart condition, and asked not to wrestle happens at the beginning of the film. It him, you know, if you forgive the unintentional pun, him wrestling with that idea is something that's very meaningful to me because I'm a person that defines myself very much by what I do and what I contribute as a, a filmmaker and an artist. So it makes me think of if I were to lose that ability or if I were to have to deal with a situation in life that would no longer allow me to be what I've defined myself as, I would have to find meaning for myself outside of my contribution. And that's something that I just like to 
to think about. So it's something I keep returning to as it's it's clearly something that stays on my mind. Yeah, I found that uh, there are quite a few films like that. It reminds me a little bit since we are uh, fresh off the Oscars a couple of months ago with Sound of Metal. Uh, that's yes. kind of in the same vein, a uh, little bit different in its uh, story devising, but very similar type of uh, relatability. And then finally, I guess, what makes a good movie for you? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. I love all genres from drama to camp and, and action and everything in between. So really, for me, it, it's about a, a mu- movie that beautifully and effectively communicates its intentions because all art is a way of humans looking to share some of their experience or communicate with other humans and and sort of make the collective human experience uh, a bit easier to navigate. So if a movie does an effective job communicating the filmmaker's intent and it does so in a way that is also, you know, artistically satisfying to to witness, then I think that that is how we can define a good movie because ultimately we need to be open to the experiences of others. So I would say that a great movie beyond good is a movie that, you know, engages all of that at a very high level and causes people to see the world in a different way. But uh, just a, a good movie is one that aligns with the intentions of its creators so that we can understand other people better. All right. So then let's move into Jurassic Park and you selected this film I have to assume it has some level of personal connection. What is your relationship to this movie then, Roman? Oh, well, it was the movie that I completely fell in love with when I was a kid. I made me want to be a paleontologist, and I followed that train for a little while when I was young uh, until I realized that it would be a very science and math heavy job and not so much about just appreciating dinosaurs for being awesome. So so I switched from a uh, wanting to be a professional paleontologist to just being an appreciator. But it really, when I think of movie experiences that I can actually remember with my true memory from being a kid, I can remember where I was sitting and how I was viewing Jurassic Park, which, you know, when I think of some other movies from my past or things that I maybe experiences I had when I was a kid, sometimes I find myself creating false memories. Like, for instance, if you have a memory, and then you're like, wait, I can see myself in that memory, that can't be real, you know, that's not. So from my from my point of view, I can remember sitting next to the couch on the floor, watching the scene with the T-Rex in the rain, and just being totally amazed and so scared. And so it stuck with me ever since. And I've I've returned to it, I bet I've seen it over 20 times. Dad, I know that uh, this isn't a film that you have a very close relationship with, but what, I guess, can you remember of anything, I guess, when this came out, anything you saw, or anything over the last, gosh, I I think it's going on almost 30 years. When this came out, I had a small child who demanded my full attention, and I had absolutely no money, so (laughs) uh, to get to a film was a rare treat. Our idea of great entertainment uh, at that time was uh, cable TV, and uh, the cable uh, company just added TV land about the time this film was released. And so we would sit and watch Dragnet and uh, some of those shows, so we didn't get to the theater. Actually, the first time I saw this film, I saw about uh, 45 minutes of it in German. With English subtitles. Wow. (laughs) You know, they dubbed the voices. And it was, uh, while I was in 
uh, München Gladbach. My wife was an exchange student in Germany. We were visiting her host family. And so her, uh, her younger brother, who I think at the time was 12 or 13, had this on. And so I'm sitting there watching it. And so I got to watch Newman get eaten. That's amazing. In German, though. So what was he In German. Yeah, he was nine. And it's much, (laughs) yes, it's much more frightening in German. (laughs) I wonder what his voice sounds like, because Wayne Knight has such a distinct way of talking. I wonder what the German dub over, you know, (laughs) did he sound similar at all? No, I mean, it was, it was pretty generic German, but, uh, and then the English subtitles. So I'm trying to follow this along. And part of me is watching it. The other part of me is trying to pick up a few uh, German phrases so I can learn a few. And I basically just ended up giving up learning the German and just reading the subtitles. Oh, man. Well, that sounds so interesting. What a unique experience. Yeah, the only thing I can remember about this movie, and it had always been on a list of ones I needed to revisit. I do remember roughly kind of the outline of the film, but I believe the only time that I can recollect uh, actually seeing it was when I was about four or five years old in daycare when it was uh, put on because this was the movie uh, that you either watched this or it was nap time. And that's about the extent of my entire experience with Jurassic Park until this time. I knew we'd get around to it on the show. So there have been a lot of movies that I'm just like, all right, when it comes up on the show, I'll end up getting to it. But to not have this one, it it felt like a very open wound in my filmography, given how seriously I take certain things. Uh, I know that people have kind of film shamed me a lot in the past for uh, at least until last year, not having seen Dumb and Dumber or The Princess Bride. Those are now watched, but, you know, there are certain ones and this one being at the time when it was released, the number one film of all time, box office wise, it's kind of a big hole to leave in your filmography. I kind of have that hole from about 19... 90 until about 1999 because I was home all the time with the kids and we lived in places that did not have movie theaters anywhere close. It's a strong argument not to, uh, or to wait to have kids. You know, if you realize you're not going to be able to make it to the theater for 10 years or something like that, that's a a big, a big investment to make for some young people. (laughs) Well, wait until they kill off the rest of the original Avengers, I guess. I mean, by the time they get through those movies, time might be the thing that kills the Avengers. It's just, he got old. That was it. No villain defeated him. He just got old. (laughs) Pretty much. So, Dad, just any initial impressions kind of coming back around to the film when it was not in German? It was an extremely well-done film. You can tell this was Spielberg. And this is Spielberg in his prime. And I was surprised at the age of the film, I mean, it's 30 years, almost 30 years, and the visual effects are not that outdated. I mean, yeah, when you're watching it in 4K on a 63-inch TV screen, which I was this afternoon, you can tell that it's, you know, not real, but that's about it. I mean, if you're just watching it for the impact of the visual it holds up really well. I don't know who Spielberg had doing his, uh, I don't know what creatures at the time, but they were way ahead of their time. Yeah, that was uh, Stan Winston. 
as a huge, huge endeavor, those animatronics. I think never to be topped, maybe ever, <laughs> but uh, it was like the pinnacle of that animatronic technology as far as uh, I've seen in film. And it was coming right off the back of uh, uh, Stan Winston working on Aliens and developing that large, that very large alien monster. So just kind yeah. of, yeah, you piggybacked off of that and went straight into developing the dinosaurs for this. And I don't know if you guys have seen some of that behind the scenes footage of those animatronics, but it it is convincing. Even knowing it's a machine, you still think, oh my God, there's a dinosaur right there. Even in the behind the scenes where you have tons of people painting it and working on it, it feels so real. Yeah, I love that stuff. It does lead me to my next question, if you will. Is, and, and I'll, I'll leave this out there for both of you, but is Steven Spielberg the greatest franchise film director? Now, before you answer, I have a couple of other potential nominees to consider. Number one, James Cameron, The Aliens franchise, Terminator, Avatar, just to name a couple. I also have a, a couple of more modern ones that are worth considering at least. James Wan is not a popular name necessarily unless you're more in the industry, but the Conjuring series, the Saw series, Aquaman, which is over a billion dollars, and Furious 7, the only entry he made in the Fast and Furious franchise, but also a billion dollar movie, considered widely among one of the top ones in that franchise. J.J. Abrams, Star Trek, Star Wars, and he did a Mission Impossible movie. And then finally, I don't know if you would necessarily say franchise per se, but John Favreau lately did both Iron Man 1 and 2. He did the live-action versions of both The Lion King and Jungle Book, both of which made over a billion dollars. And he's now the creative director behind The Mandalorian and all the other series that that has spawned. Now, I know that's TV, but we're getting to the point where TV and movies are basically one and the same. So Spielberg, to his credit, has Jaws, even though he only did the original. He did the first two Jurassic Parks. He did all four, to this point, Indiana Jones films. I know we're not getting him for this fifth version, but he still at least did all the work up to this point. And he has at least directed one successful Star Wars film. So I would put him at least near the top if you're looking at franchise directors. And the definition of franchise could arguably be said to have started with Spielberg. But the reason that I really raise this is Spielberg might arguably be the best franchise director and just the best director, period. Not to mention that he's able to do multiple things and be great at everything. But being a franchise film director has so many different skills that somebody like Martin Scorsese could probably never do a Marvel film. But you give Steven Spielberg one, I think he could successfully pull it off. And it's a range that I don't find too many other people have. It's interesting to think of the challenges of carrying on material through multiple films, especially when filmmakers and production companies aren't completely certain of the success of the first film. So when I look at the franchise directors that you mentioned, I think all of them that you spoke about are fairly well accomplished. And I really like John Favreau for a variety of reasons. But in terms of the directing itself, I don't think anybody is going to be able to top Steven Spielberg in terms of visual storytelling. And I think there's still something to be said for 
the batting average that Spielberg has. You know, his success rate, even in his least favorable movies, is still very high. And he still maintains a base level of an enjoyable and well-paced film. So he he's highly consistent. And that is something that within an individual film is a mark of a very good director in order to keep control of the tone of a film for the duration of an entire movie, let alone, as you said, an entire series. We'll probably try to exclude Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in, in what I'm saying here. But other than that, I think everything that you mentioned is really uh, it's as high quality as it gets. I don't think it's possible to top it. So what do you think? I think several people might argue Temple of Doom also was not a great sequel per se. There are a lot of problems with that film, but I'm going to save that one. We have it coming up here in about uh, five or six weeks for uh, scheduling. I will also say that from the comments that I've received now, I don't have the the knowledge to be able to agree or disagree because I haven't seen the sequel to Jurassic Park. I know he didn't do the sequel to Jaws, but you talk about Kingdom of the Crystal Skull or you talk about Temple of Doom and some of the sequels aren't there. I think you might be able to argue James Cameron coming in and doing T2, which is possibly the greatest action film of all time. And coming into the Aliens franchise and making that blockbuster where he's borrowing them on the material and building out a further universe, you could make that argument as to him being one up or the other. I don't know. I just have an appreciation for the wide range that Spielberg can bring because not only is he able to do E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark, but then he can pull off doing close encounters. And at the same time he's doing Jurassic Park, he's putting the finishing touches on Schindler's list that he ends up winning the Oscar for. So the ability of somebody like that, I just want to take a second to kind of marvel and give some level of credence. Cause sometimes we just are so enamored with greatness that we end up taking it for granted. He's been with us for so long and he's created so many great classics that I don't know if we give him his due sometimes when it comes to how ridiculously great, long, and rangy his entire filmography is. Yeah, absolutely. And he's, you know, one of the most fascinating things about Spielberg is his impact in the industry outside of the films he directs. I mean, thinking of the titles that he's directed, he already has a massively prolific career. But uh, thinking of everything that he's helped shepherd into existence, all the things that he's executive produced or produced, and everybody who he has been an advocate for and giving a leg up. You can see so many people reference him as the person that gave them their opportunity to come into the industry and make an impact. I think he's completely invaluable in that regard, and I think he's he's one of the, the pillars holding up the industry as it exists today at all. Uh, so many things would be different if he didn't have a very intentional and thoughtful approach to how he supports the people around him. I also want to say that Kathleen Kennedy should definitely be mentioned if we're going to talk about how great Spielberg is. Kathleen Kennedy's right there with him on all of his huge productions and the movie landscape wouldn't look the same without her. Yeah, I have to give you credit on that one, but I I guess I tried to limit this more to directors. That's the only reason because she's primarily a producer from what I can tell. Right. I just think that especially when you talk about franchise films, the size and scale of a, a, a franchise, and especially in today's modern landscape, those films are mostly put on the shoulders of producers because of the scale of the 
the endeavor that it is. So directors have a lot to navigate in that sense. But I think if you look at a lot of the tentpole movies over the past couple of decades, uh, the producerial choices have a much stronger hand in how the movie comes out than the directors themselves. And many directors mention being stifled or limited or unable to complete their vision if the producer isn't there supporting that. So I totally am happy to stay within the scope of the question. But I do think that if I'm going to talk about Spielberg, I have to talk about Kathleen Kennedy because, you know, he would not be the same without her. All fair points. Dad, you had something you were going to try to say? I, I wanted to point out, Spielberg has by far the greatest range of any of the great directors. I mean, I am a huge, as Tom knows, huge Hitchcock fan. Okay, I just love Hitchcock. But Hitchcock and comedy just did not mix. I mean, what about Harry? It's almost unwatchable. And, uh, you know, and I love Hitchcock. Okay. Uh, Billy Wilder, or Wilder, great with comedy. He did a few that were more serious, but he, you know, he did not have nearly the range. Um, uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Wilder doing both Sunset Boulevard and Double Indemnity. Sun Like It Hot, The Apartment. Like, he did comedies. He probably is the closest one. The only other one I would probably put in that class is maybe Weiler, because he could go between much more solemn, intimate films, but then big epics as well. I, I guess when you talk about the scale and the size and being able to do different things. But I don't know if you were, you're saying genre differences with Weiler as much as you did with Wilder. Okay, and, and what I'm saying... Billy Wilder or Wilder is by far has the biggest range, but he even pales in comparison to Spielberg because Spielberg has done every genre. He's done uh, suspense. He's done artistic stuff. He's done comedy. He's done uh, sci-fi. He's done every area. It's almost like he purposely goes out of his way. He's done a historic piece with, uh, Lincoln, um, he goes out of his way to find something different from what he's done before, just to prove to himself sometimes that he can do it. The only thing he has not made to this point, which he is rectifying this year, is a musical. Yes, and I just have this feeling it's going to be absolutely phenomenal because I've already heard comments from Rita Moreno who said this is the way that the original should have been done. Which is high praise given how successful and acclaimed the original is. Yeah, I'm really curious to see how that'll stack up. Outside of the very poor casting decisions that they made for the original West Side Story in terms of uh, representing the diversity of the cast accurately, I do think that the filmmaking and the visual storytelling of that movie are really exceptional. And the frames in that film are beautifully composed and and the music is highly memorable. So it has a lot of strong assets to bring. And I'm actually, I wouldn't say I'm concerned, but I'm definitely curious to see how an adaptation of that is going to add something to the already existing pieces that are there. Whereas I just watched In the Heights and I thought that uh, that coming out the same year as the new, the remake of West Side Story is going to maybe make it a a hard fight for West Side Story to top what In the Heights was able to do in terms of the new West Side Story is only going to be able to maybe rectify some of that diversity casting and allow more Latinos to actually fill the roles that they were meant to be cast in. You know, you look at In the Heights and that's something that 
you know, created tons of original roles for many Latino actors and was able to bring that to the screen in a beautifully realized way. So I, I'm actually not sure how it's going to go. I mean, it's it's Spielberg, so it's going to have a certain base level of accomplishment that I'm sure you can't mess with. But uh, I'm really interested to see what they're going to do to make it different or exceptional from the original. I certainly don't bet against Spielberg. So, Dad, do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. John Hammond, played by Richard Attenborough, is the owner of Jurassic Park, a dinosaur wildlife theme park located on Isla Nublar. After an incident with a Velociraptor, Hammond brings in three specialists to sign off on the park to calm investors. The specialists, paleontologist Alan Grant, Sam Neill, paleobotanist Ellie Sattler, Laura Dern, and chaos theorist Ian Malcolm, Jeff Goldblum, are surprised to see the island's park's main attraction are living, breathing dinosaurs, created with a mixture of fossilized DNA and genetic crossbreeding and cloning. When lead programmer Dennis Nedry, Wayne Knight, turns off the park's power to sneak out with samples of the dinosaurs' embryos to sell to a corporate rival, the dinosaurs break free and the survivors must find a way to turn the power back on and make it out alive. Thank you. Cast for this movie, Sam Neill as Dr. Alan Grant, Laura Dern as Dr. Ellie Sattler, Jeff Goldblum as Dr. Ian Malcolm, Richard Attenborough as John Hammond, Bob Peck as Robert Muldoon, Joseph Mazzello as Tim Murphy, Ariana Richards as Lex Murphy, Samuel L. Jackson as Ray Arnold, Wayne Knight as Dennis Nedry, Martin Ferrero as Donald Gennaro, B.D. Wong as Dr. Henry Wu. Recognition for the film. It won Oscars for Best Sound, Sound Effects Editing, and Visual Effects. Since its release, Jurassic Park has frequently been cited by film critics and industry professionals as one of the greatest movies of the action and thriller genres. The movie is also an example of a techno-thriller. It was the highest grossing movie of all time until beaten by Titanic a few years later. The American Film Institute named Jurassic Park the 35th most thrilling film of all time on June 13, 2001. On Empire Magazine's 15th anniversary in 2004, it judged Jurassic Park the 6th most influential film in the magazine's lifetime. Empire called the first encounter with a Brachiosaurus the 28th most magical moment in cinema. On Film Review's 55th anniversary in 2005, it declared the film to be one of the five most important in the magazine's lifetime. In 2006, IGN ranked Jurassic Park as the 19th greatest film franchise ever. In a 2010 poll, the readers of Entertainment Weekly rated it the greatest summer movie of the previous 20 years. The popularity of the movie led the management of an NBA expansion franchise founded in Toronto in 1995 to adopt the nickname Raptors. In addition, during the team's playoff games, fans watched the game on a large television in a fan area outside the arena, which has been nicknamed Jurassic Park. The film is seen as giving rise to the Jurassic Park generation, to young people inspired to become paleontologists and to a surge in discoveries about dinosaurs in real life. And finally, in 2018, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. Did you know? The T-Rex occasionally malfunctioned due to the rain. Producer Kathleen Kennedy recalls, quote, The T-Rex went into the heebie-jeebies sometimes, scared the crap out of us. We'd be, like, eating lunch, and all of a sudden a T-Rex would come alive. At first, we didn't know what was happening, and then we realized it was the rain. You'd hear people start screaming, end quote. 
Did you know? We may never have had the chance to see Jeff Goldblum's renowned portrayal of Dr. Ian Malcolm or get that famous open shirt scene if Spielberg had opted for casting director Janet Hirschnan's other choice for the role. Jim Carrey was, in fact, frontrunner for the part after he had performed well during the audition phase, but Hirschnan eventually pushed for Goldblum, a decision that gave us his life finds a way. Did you know? Ian Malcolm and John Hammond wore opposite colored clothes during the film's two-hour runtime. Malcolm dressed all in black and Hammond dressed in white. The story goes that Spielberg and Crichton saw the duo as representations of themselves, with Spielberg's positive and idealistic approach resembling Hammond, hence the white garments, and Crichton's cynical and scientific side defined by Malcolm and his dress code. Did you know? Spielberg earned a whopping $250 million thanks to a back-end deal that saw him scoop up a sizable portion of cash from profits and total gross of merchandise sales. Did you know? The Tyrannosaurus roars were a combination of dog, penguin, tiger, alligator, and elephant sounds. Did you know? When Hurricane and Nikki hit, the cast and crew were all required to move into the ballroom of the hotel in which they were staying. Sir Richard Attenborough, however, stayed in his hotel room and slept through the entire event. When asked how he could possibly have done this, Attenborough replied, quote, My dear boy, I survived the Blitz, end quote. Did you know? The guest's encounter with the sick Triceratops ends without any clear explanation as to why the animal is sick. Michael Crichton's original novel and the screenplay, however, include an explanation. The Stegosaurus Triceratops lacked suitable teeth for grinding food, and so, like birds, would swallow rocks and use them as gizzard stones. In the digestive tract, these rocks would grind the food to aid in digestion. After six weeks, the rocks would become too smooth to be useful, and the animal would regurgitate them. When finding and eating new rocks to use, the animal would also swallow West Indian lilac berries. The fact that the berries and stones are regurgitated explains why Ellie never finds traces of them in the animal's excrement. Did you know? In 2005, paleontologist Dr. Mary Schweitzer discovered red blood cells and soft tissue in the fossilized bones of a T-Rex, meaning dinosaur cloning may someday become a reality. So, gentlemen, with all that, what is this movie about? Roman, let's start with you. I just want to take a brief moment to say I love the way you say, did you know? I want all of the fun facts in my life to be narrated by you and with a pop-up that says, did you know? It's very good. <laughs> Maybe I should make a ringtone. Yeah, I think so. I think that would be great. Hmm. As far as what the movie's about, it's very interesting. There, it's it's a dense text, both in the book and in in the movie. There's so many different aspects and existential aspects that the film covers. But I think that uh, ultimately there is, you know, the centering of the film on chaos theory. I think is a strong, you can make a strong argument for that being the, the central aspect of the film and seeing the characters as well as our own reactions to, you know, how do you encounter situations where you understand that uh, things are outside of human control, you know, and not only the actions that we take, but actions that we don't take. And so you, you understand that you have a certain responsibility uh, to society and yourself to make conscious and responsible decisions, but ultimately many of the choices you make in your life are going to have consequences that extend beyond what you were able to foresee. And in terms of your dealings with other people in the world, it's also important to recognize and remember that those aspects are also very much outside of other people's control. So things, things can get, you know, as the saying goes, they can get out of hand quickly. And it's a truth about 
life that's important for all of us to examine. So the film shows us how many different kinds of people from various backgrounds and situations work through that truth. And I think the other thing that the movie about is about is uh, it's about dinosaurs uh, in a way that is, you know, almost so simple that it feels like it doesn't need to be said. But dinosaurs are a very unique part of the human experience. They are creatures that we have never experienced or seen with our own eyes. There are the remains of dinosaurs all over the world and have influenced many different societies before they even knew what they were. We're still trying to come to terms with them. And every year there's a new revision or a new approach to how we visualize dinosaurs. And I think that Jurassic Park is the culmination of all of the best understanding of what dinosaurs might be and what they might mean to us. And every depiction of a dinosaur since Jurassic Park is influenced by that movie. So it's really outside of just being a film. I think it's humanity's best shot at trying to understand what a dinosaur is and was and what that might mean to us as a species who is so impossibly far removed from them that we'll never know the real truth of how they were. So just as important as a narrative as it is to just the scientific community and human understanding of dinosaurs at all. I understand there's a lot of inaccuracies now that people have gone back and and said, oh, the you know velociraptors aren't that size. They don't act like that. A T-Rex would never do that. There's a lot of debate over how it would actually work. But I really do think it's, you know, the scale of the production and the teams of people and the teams of artists and, and scientists that worked on the film. I think it's the best, the best dice roll as uh, to understanding the feeling of what it is to be around dinosaurs. And uh, I think that's what it's, um, you know, primary function to society is. I think it's easy to pick on this film. I think the easiest uh, accusation lobbed against this, and I may have this wrong, but I think it's right, is that uh, the T-Rex, pictured even on the logo, is from the Cretaceous period. Anyway, but Dad, if uh, you were to suggest this movie to a friend, how would you describe it? Well, there's three different ways you can look at this film. The overall philosophical would be that this is a story of medical ethics, of what you should and shouldn't do, and what you could think is possible is not necessarily you should be doing. Then the other one is, is the more basic, which is, well, if Godzilla and Jaws had a love child, this would be the film. I kind of went in the same direction as both of you. I really pared it down to some of its base elements, which it's a horror thriller survival monster movie about being trapped in an island with dinosaurs that are looking to eat you. But realistically, and the thing that I think if you don't take it just at face value, and you've both made mentions to this, is the meta-commentary on going too far with science without considering consequences. And I just beg to reference COVID-19, anyone? That is not an implication or an accusation, just for the sake of putting that as a disclaimer on the podcast. Let's move to best performance then. What do you guys have down? Uh, Dad, let's start with you. Uh, Sam Neill. He... He just came across so well. He was laid back, but yet action-oriented. He was fascinated by what he saw, but yet he understood what he was doing enough that he could handle the worst situations. I thought he was perfect in the role, and not one trace of an Australian accent, so I, I thought he was did, did absolutely great. Roman, where'd you go? 
I would agree Sam Neill is incredible in the movie and always stands out to me. It's a memorable performance that doesn't have a parallel that comes to mind when I think about other movies. He represents a type of person that I don't see frequently on screen. And so I think it was very memorable for that reason. But I think my nomination has to go to the animatronic uh, T-Rex as the best performer (laughs) in the movie. I mean, talk about uh, selling believability in the role. That thing doesn't even have consciousness. So <laughs> I think uh, I, it just, I think it's uh, so expressive and so evocative and it feels like it carries weight and it's so scary and so intense. And I mean, I don't know. So I recognize that that's a little, little bit of a left field call there, but uh, it's it's the animatronic T-Rex for me. <laughs> no, I like it. Uh, I don't think we've had anything that's an inanimate object. <laughs> or is it? In, I guess it is animate. <laughs> Not for best performance, yes, but I've thrown out a few uh, here and there as secondary and charismatic. Yeah, I suppose you have. You you've been a little bit more broad sometimes in your nominations. I did. I think I did Ireland in general as the most charismatic and the quiet man. I oh, think you did. Hilarious. Now that I think about it, yeah, <laughs> I'd agree with that too. <laughs> Which was an unusual, but honestly, probably a very astute perception at the time. I went with something that I thought would have been a little bit more obvious. I just went with Steven Spielberg. I mean, we've talked about him coming into this. I think more than anything, he is the big draw when it comes to some of these movies. Because realistically, outside of seeing them in this movie, how many people could name somebody other than Jeff Goldblum that acted in this film besides ourselves? Like, I, I don't think Sam Neill is a household name. I know she's got an acting award from two years ago, but Laura Dern is not necessarily like this huge star. She's more of a that girl that you've seen in a bunch of different things, but can't remember her name. I think the big draw on this, and maybe that's hit on Roman's nomination that it's the dinosaurs, it's the, the visual effects, but somebody's got to be the architect behind stitching that all together and Again, I just marvel sometimes at his ability to do so much and make it seem so easy. Yeah, no, he's amazing, truly. So best secondary performer, and this is one that you nominated for E.T., but I I think this might be one of the greatest film duos we've ever had. John Williams. The majesty of that sequence when the dinosaurs are first introduced and you pan back and have that whole visual there and it just plays the theme over the top of it, it's so majestic and almost brings a tear to your eye, just the the wonder of what that can do. And that's really incredible, powerful movie making. I've said for a while, when we ask the question of our guests, what makes a good movie for you? Score is one of the things that is near the top on my list. I love to be moved by a wonderfully matched, beautiful score that enhances what I'm seeing on screen. And I can't think of too many better people than what John Williams has accomplished. And yeah, you could read off his filmography as well, but there's no doubt that these two are enhanced by each other. And I I think it's somewhat hand in hand when it comes to Spielberg creating great film. He has to have John Williams in the composer seat. Yeah, John Williams is uh, completely unparalleled and he's made such a memorable mark on all of the films that he's composed for. It's going to be, you know, the void that's going to be created when there's no more John Williams. Uh, What impossible shoes to fill. And even in this movie, the diversity in 
the musical storytelling and his approach to each different scene. I'd say there's at least four or five memorable themes from Jurassic Park, not just the, you know, entry to the park song or, or when they leave, but really just, ah, it's, it's so impactful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. John Williams deserves all the praise he can get. So Roman, who did you put down as your best secondary? I think I probably would have put John Williams had I understood that that was somebody that I could nominate for, for that position. But I think I'll just tell you what I thought initially was, uh, you know, Wayne Knight leaves such a memorable performance that I, and I mean, he's almost become inextricable from that character. And I guess Newman on, on Seinfeld, but really like who could have done it like Wayne Knight? I mean, how do you put a face to greed and, uh, <laughs> you know, and really give us a, a target to, associate those characteristics i can't think of anybody who would have been more perfect for the role even just the way he sits down you know we kind of take it for granted because he's really essentially it seems like he's playing himself but uh he just does such a good job being for lack of a better phrase he's very hateable you know you you're very much you are and i mean man when that computer pop-up comes up and he says "Ah, ah, ah you didn't say the magic word i mean that's you just want to throw the computer out the window. It's so aggravating. And so the fact that he can touch so many of your emotions, I just think he he has a hard wire into your brain. And so I, I think that's why I would nominate him. Yeah, he certainly has a capability of being unlikable while also not being somehow mean about it. Like he's still accessible, but he's such a goofy villain. I guess yeah. is really the most apt I can come with it. Uh, Dad, who did you have down? I have to put this down. I'm, I'm going to say who it is, then I'm going to say why, of course. Jeff Goldblum. And it's primarily because everything other than this film that Jeff Goldblum's been in, I've thought, why is Jeff Goldblum in this? Because whatever he does seems to be peripheral. It started when I went to see what has become one of my favorite films, Silverado. Back in the 80s, I saw that at the theaters. I happened to meet Brian Dennehy and talked briefly about it. And Jeff Goldblum's in that. And we're like, at the end of the film, my friend Eric and I had went to see this. And we looked at each other and said, do you have any idea why the fuck Jeff Goldblum was even there? Other than they thought that they should have a gambler in the film. Because he had almost no role. He was just there, being obnoxious. And that was every film. Until all of a sudden I watch this and I go, wow, Jeff Goldblum really did a good job. And he was the voice of reason. And this is an eye-opening event because having recently found something that I thought uh, Jim Carrey was good in and giving him kudos, I thought, well, as long as I've been complaining or criticizing somebody's work for a long period of time, I'd give them the kudos this time for doing a, what I perceived as a good job in this film and, and being the conscience of scientific responsibility. So with that great caveat, who did you put as most charismatic? The T-Rex. Because, of course, the T-Rex was just absolutely, that's who you paid attention to. And I remember even watching this film in Germany when the T-Rex shows up. You know, Alex at the time would have been about 13 or 12, 13, 14. I'm somewhere in there. And his mouth going agape. And that's the reaction most people have when they saw this. And that should be ultimately the definition of charismatic. Third point. 
I ended up with a similar conclusion to your best secondary. I don't care for Laura Dern in most movies she's in. She seems to be in these really stern, feminine roles that often make you not like her. But I seem to be gravitated towards whatever she was putting out in this movie. It's the most likable performance I've ever seen out of her, so I kind of came to the same conclusion. Uh, Roman, that leaves you. What did you have as most charismatic? I thought the kids were just such a delight. Anytime you see the two kids on screen, uh, they just suspend your attention and they really uh, bring very genuine performances that I think are hard to match by child actors ever since. They just feel very present and in the moment. So anytime they're on screen, I'm always compelled by what they're doing. And I thought they were great. Yeah, there's such an innocent representation to having children in that scenario, even though the the reactions are completely genuine. You just feel a little bit more terror when it's kids involved because you can relate to being so much smaller than even the average human and then going up against something like that. I, I think it just adds to the overall of the film. All right, gentlemen, that takes us to best scene. Let's give our guest the first nominee. What do you have down? The the scene with the kids and the raptors in the kitchen when they've got to run and hide and outsmart these monsters that have been proclaimed throughout the movie as being very intelligent. I thought it was a great way to really do a battle of wits between the, you know, the this presence that has been deemed to be incredibly intelligent and and good at strategy and hunting. And then you have these kids who you really give their due credit because they're heroes in the film in several instances. I mean, Lex is the coder and she's able to get the park back online and lock the doors later on because of her uh, intelligence. And so I just thought it was really fun to see the kids being treated as though they have a valuable contribution and a strong intelligence and they're able to outwit those raptors. It's just super compelling. And in terms of the, the actual execution of the scene... There are so many interesting camera angles and and subtle moves and the editing's flawless. It's just perfect for me. So that's one of my favorite scenes of all time, you know, let alone this film. So that's my nomination. Dad, what did you have as your first nominee? I had uh, Wayne Knight and his uh, trek through the uh, park trying to get out and ultimately meeting his fate. I mean, what were you thinking? (laughs) You've been involved in this, and you know that there are two kinds of dinosaurs, the flesh-eating and the plant-eating. And this dinosaur is staring you down, and you don't think, oh, well, maybe this dinosaur wants to eat me. But uh, it just it, it just is the epitome of haplessness. I mean, you just know as he's floundering around that this is going to turn out very badly. Yeah, absolutely. First one I had down is one we kind of briefly discussed when I mentioned John Williams, and it's Welcome to Jurassic Park. Uh, Just, again, the rising score, and when you think about the pan back and the majesty associated with being introduced into that world for the first time, and how they've set it up going into that point, uh, I think it's just a well-done piece of movie making and world-building, frankly. Uh, that we've even gotten to this point. And then they take you in and they give you all the exposition. But you you kind of knew that some of this was coming. You just weren't sure what you were going to get. And it somehow matches the expectations. Roman, I think you're up with your next nominee. 
Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> the scene where they are going through the it, it's like man it's so funny to hard to phrase it as a scene but it's the presentation they watch when they come to the park and they have like mr dna you know the little animation of the guy and he just walks you through like like if you were being welcomed to a museum or something i don't know that stuck with me forever but it's just so so interesting to hear the technical explanation in layman's terms of how they went about creating dinosaurs. It's very believable. I, I you know, watch it and I just think but like it felt real to me. I felt like I was on a tour. So plus the animation in that is really fun and kind of has that silly aesthetic to it that I enjoy. I love whenever somebody can figure out a way of making exposition incredibly creative. Like you said, this takes you into it, and it's entirely believable that in something that's supposed to be a theme park with museum aspects to it, that they would have an explanation video like that that would set everything up, as opposed to some just file scene that he hands him in the helicopter and you're just reading through a bunch of documents or something else. That would be the cliche. I just appreciate how well you can do this. Absolutely. Totally agree. Dad, I think that puts you up. The first scene where the uh, T-Rex goes after the car, ultimately with the lawyer being eaten. What a cliche. The lawyer is the first person eaten. I mean, it goes back to Shakespeare, kill all the lawyers. Ah, well. If if you didn't know for context, Roman, he is an attorney. (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah, (laughs) great. (laughs) But that was my remaining question. Is being eaten while on the toilet the worst way to go? Well, maybe. I mean, I, I've been working off and on for years on a comedy screenplay where the guy gets attacked by an ale- or a crocodile through the uh, toilet. Boy, that is probably, I can't think of too many other ways to die that would be worse. All right. The next one that I had down was the philosophy debate. And again, you want to talk about great screenwriting the repartee and the cadence and how all of that done is played out. But I also think it's a credit to some of the editing because you don't really have a lot of great pauses and it really keeps a good pace of framing the debate. Why shouldn't we create dinosaurs if we have the technology? Well, have you considered all of these consequences, A, B, C, and D? Well, okay, sure, you can look at it in the negative light and back and forth and back and forth. And it's like a great ping pong battle between two titans just being written in front of you. And uh, I just had an appreciation. Again, when you get great line delivery, it's part of my background in theater that I just love all of these great deliveries. And uh, I thought that was one of the best scenes as far as just pure line delivery for the entire movie. And I'm sure that'll be reflected in my best quotes coming up. Roman, I think that puts you up. Do you have any others? Yeah, it's so hard in a movie where almost every scene is memorable and enjoyable, but I love when Dr. Alan Grant talks to the unsuspecting kid at the beginning of the movie and explains why a velociraptor would actually be fearsome and instead of a, you know, just a big turkey or whatever. <laughs> There's something about the menace that he brings to that speech. He has so much passion about what he's talking about. I love that. And it just captivated me. As an audience member, I just got sucked into his world and how much he cares about these dinosaurs and how much he knows about the dinosaurs and to not underestimate them. I really love that scene. Always sticks with me. And he's got the little claw there as well. He (laughs) draws the incision lines even on the kid. I love it. It's a blast. 
I do love when they can successfully set something up and really give you the lead in. The amount of times that the Velociraptors are pictured early on but are never really seen on screen. You have that opening scene in the cage. Then you later have his description of that. And then finally you get that uh, scene where they're kind of uh, you lower the cow in and it just comes out with the, the thing completely destroyed. And you never see them up until that final part of the movie. And it, it's a great way of creating the suspense and the thrills that are going to be associated because you know that's your closer. Dad, I think that puts you up. Do you have any others? Yes, uh, rebooting uh, the electrical system and Samuel L. Jackson going to the power plant. I was at any moment in time expecting Samuel L. Jackson to yell out, why are these motherfucking raptors on this plane? A little bit before uh, Samuel L. Jackson was the lead in these types of movies. <laughs> I can imagine him having said that just in his own time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do think it was one of the better thrilling scenes as far as everything that was going on and Ellie going into the, I don't know, the maintenance shit, I think it was. And uh, just the way that whole thing is set up, thought it was a really good use of scene, but it's continuing to build towards that end where they all get trapped in the visitor center. Uh, the next one that I had down was the Brachiosauruses and just kind of the whole picture of what you might see if you just had a bird's eye view of the or of prehistoric times when the dinosaurs roamed. And it's a little bit more peaceful you can be more observant. He makes the dinosaur calls. He's um, very nurturing with the kids, but you get to appreciate instead of being terrified for the dinosaurs just for a minute. And I, I think there is something to be said, even taking that small bit of break, kind of an eye of the storm piece um, after the terror and the rest of it to allow you to, uh, as the audience, be let up just slightly enough before you go plunge back into the the terror that will be to close out the film. The only other one I had was just escaping the tree, and I, I just liked it as a technical scene, again, for the editing and the amount of things that you have to do in order to get in and out of that. But you have the one terrified kid on the ground, and you have the other one, and trying to survive while cr crawling up and around trees and, and all the, the technical that goes into it. Again, it's just an appreciation for how they use that, because that's one of the few parts of the movie where the monsters, per se, don't have to be the most fear-inducing thing in the film. All right, so favorite scene. Roman, what did you have down? The scene at the end, it's just such a uh, mood-elevating scene when T-Rex comes in and saves the day that it just... Uh, I don't know if you can parallel that feeling of triumph where, you know, your favorite character comes back and rules the world. And when the banner falls and T-Rex roars, it's just a feeling that you can't replicate anywhere else in the movie or in any other movie. So it's got to be my favorite because it's just the most it's it's like, you know, Jurassic Park turning the volume up on itself to 11 just for that moment. It just really cuts through everything and 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 unites the film together in a, a moment of triumph, which. I think a lot of modern films are missing triumph as an ingredient in their uh, emotional roller coaster. So I really love that that's uh, the end of the movie. It's the symbols at the end of a symphony. Yeah, yeah, the big... Yeah, I would agree. I ended up as uh, my most indelible being really that last sequence in the visitor center between the kitchen and then finding Ellie and Dr. Grant and them finally escaping to the T-Rex. Uh, I think that... Coming out of this movie, it's hard not to 
have your immediate thoughts either be that or the T-Rex in the rain. It's probably one of those two. Uh, my favorite, though, I, I did go with that Welcome to Jurassic Park. Just again, it just kind of struck me not having seen this for probably 20 some years. The the scale of that and the universe building. And again, just all of the things I've kind of mentioned up to this point. I, I just have mad respect for uh, everything that was created just in that one moment where you go from very small and you've done everything kind of close up and you're very intimate with all the people. Now you're scaling back, and it's just on a massive scale. Dad, favorite scene? Welcome to Jurassic Park, for the same reasons you gave. So along that line, I'll just go with my most indelible moment, and that is obviously the raptor eating the lawyer. Being a lawyer, I would love to be the raptor eating the other lawyer, and I guess that's what I'll have to envision because I certainly don't want to go getting eaten while sitting on the toilet. All right. I think you're the only one left with most indelible there, Roman. What is the most indelible moment of this movie for you? When Malcolm explains the chaos theory through the drop of water on Ellie's hand, when I saw that when I was a kid, I mean, I was a kid. I was very young. To be introduced to a concept like that and get an explanation that was understandable even to me at that time, you know, I'm sure my nuance and understanding has grown over time, but just that has stuck with me forever, forever. And so even watching it again, as I recently rewatched it for the podcast, I just thought it just sticks with me. It's it's so great. And he's hitting on her at the same time with this subtext layer to the whole scene. And you get to watch him really putting it on thick and her really, you know, just wanting to be involved in the moment and just totally not even processing what he's doing there. It's pretty fun. Or just allowing him to do it because she's so fascinated with the idea, right? That there's there's some pretty fun stuff in there. All right, so let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Thank you for rejoining us. In memoriam for the week, Dad, do we have anyone we need to remember this week? Yes, we'll start with uh, uh, Miriam Laserson. Uh, she was an actress. She was in uh, My Father's House. Not well known, but she was 102. She passed this week. Today, uh, actually this morning, Robert Downey Sr., uh, who was in Boogie Nights and Tower Heist, among a huge host of indie films in the early 70s, most notably at this point in time as being the father of Robert Downey Jr., passed. And then the big name this week, uh, Richard Donner, the director and producer, did the Goonies, Superman the movie, and many of the sequels. He did the entire uh, Lethal Weapon franchise. He did The Omen and uh, the Duncan household, one of the Christmas favorites, Bill Murray and Scrooged. Just a, a couple of additional notes. Uh, I did have uh, two other people that weren't on your list, but just from the obituary that I got from Variety on Robert Downey, celebrated filmmaker in his own right, was 85 years old. Downey is best known as the director behind Putney Swope, a celebrated anti-establishment satire on the advertising world of Madison Avenue. He worked as an actor and director regularly from the early 50s until 2011 when he appeared in his final film, Tower Heist. Boy, that's uh, a terrible one to go out on. In addition to directing film, he worked on some notable TV, including three episodes of The Twilight Zone. And for the last decade, Downey has been living in New York with his wife, Rosemary Rogers. Also passing away this week, Suzanne Douglas, best known for starring in the WE sitcom The Parent, 
Hood, and the 1989 dance drama Tap. She passed away on July 6th. She was 64. Also, Dilip Kumar, the acting icon who was credited with bringing the method style into Indian cinema and was widely known as the Tragedy King, passed away at 98 this week. We miss them all, and please uh, search out any of their work. Richard Donner's is all over the place. You can find plenty with him, but simply uh, remember these all as uh, we go forward and all of the contributions they've had. All right, let's go right into best funniest lines. Gentlemen, we'll just kind of go rapid fire. We'll go in round robin fashion. We'll start with our guest. What's the first quote you have to give us? What's going to happen to the goat? I love it. Very simple, very elegant. Dad, you're up. John Hammond, all major theme parks have delays. When they opened Disneyland in 1956, nothing worked. Malcolm, yeah, but John, if the Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, the pirates don't eat the tourists. Hammond and Malcolm, Hammond, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Malcolm, yeah, yeah, but your your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Right on. Go ahead. Uh, when Malcolm's explaining chaos theory, and then both Alan Grant and uh, Ellie Sattler jump out of the car to go uh, out into the park, he just keeps explaining chaos theory to himself, and then he says, now I'm by myself talking to myself. That's chaos theory. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Dad. Malcolm to uh, Sattler, after she's been digging through the pile of dino droppings, uh, you will remember to wash your hands before you uh, eat anything. <laughs> uh, also, Malcolm, don't you see the danger, John? Inherent in what you're doing here? Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a kid that's found his dad's gun. I know I mentioned it before, but uh, 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 you didn't say the magic word. Malcolm, remind me to thank John for the wonderful weekend. Malcolm, looking at a huge mound of dinosaur feces. That is one big pile of shit. <laughs> when the lawyer runs out of the car in the rain and they watch him from the other car, he says, when you gotta go, you gotta go. <laughs> I think that's been repeated probably more often than I'd like to reference. <laughs> Malcolm. How do you know they're all females? Does someone walk into the enclosure and look under the dinosaur's skirt? <laughs> Malcolm, I'm always on the lookout for the future ex-Mrs. Malcolm. What do you call a blind dinosaur? I don't know. Do you think he saw us? What do you call a blind dinosaur's dog? Oh, you got me. Uh, do you think he saw us, Rex? I don't have any of those. Okay. What have they got in there? King Kong? Uh, do you have any others, Roman? Hang on to your butts is definitely <laughs> the Sam Jackson. Hang on to your butts. He's got the cigarette in his mouth. Beautiful. Dinosaurs and man, two species separated by 65 million years of evolution, have just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea what to expect? I don't believe it. You were meant to come down here and defend me against these characters, and the only one I've got on my side is the blood-sucking lawyer. Thank you? <laughs> Had to put that one in there for you, Pop. I only had one other one. How can we sit in the light of discovery and not act? Oh, what's so great about discovery? It's a violent, penetrative act that scars what it explores. What you call discovery, I call the rape of the natural world. <laughs> yeah. Great one to land on. 
especially in a kid's movie, that you can kind of get away with that. But uh, interesting. All right. Are we ready to move to the Stanley rubric? Let's do it. All right. Legacy. I'll take this one first, Dad. I've really heavily considered going full 10. But I have to remember, the only 10 I've ever given full for Legacy is Jaws. And I think Jaws, as far as uh, certain trends within the industry, you think about all of the summer movie hype, all of the uh, blockbusterness that came around it, making these giant epics and franchise films and all the other things. I couldn't quite go that high on industry. I think it's equal in the eyes of the audience. I ended up at a 4.5 industry wise for the amount of impact that it just simply had from the visuals to the storytelling to its box office to everything else. I went with a five for the audience, 4.5 for industry, total of 9.5. Dad, what did you have down? I went with a four for the industry simply because of, I, I think there was a tendency of the industry to kind of almost think like, uh, I don't think we can ever reproduce that. So we're not going to even try at times. But as far as legacy itself goes, oh my gosh, there are so many kids out there or and now young adults who are just absolutely fascinated by dinosaurs. I mean, it, this movie probably saved the Natural Museum of uh, History in New York, the Field Museum in Chicago, and a bunch of other types of museums. So I, I so that I'm at nine point five. All right, so making the math easy for me, Roman, are you going to go with a nine point five as well, or are you going to go straight ten? I'm going full ten, and I'm in total agreement with Dana on that last point. The impact it's had on the world and and everyone, I think indirectly ever or directly everyone has been affected by Jurassic Park uh, moving forward. And in terms of industry impact, it's still with the filmmakers that I work with and speak to and you know people on high level tv shows or big movie sets anybody that you speak to has a very high regard for jurassic park and of course for spielberg and when you think of spielberg this is one of the top you know three or four things that you think about when you even think the name spielberg so i really think that uh just no question full 10 full 10 but it's I'm the one who picked the movie for the podcast, and I'm I'm totally in love with the film, so I might be a little biased, but I'm giving it full full throttle. To be fair, picking the five best Spielberg films would be an exercise in futility. It'd be like picking the top five Beatles songs. You might be able to do it, but there's going to be so much disagreement that it would never go anywhere. I just think Jurassic Park's going to be one of those that always slides in there. It's always going to be in that five, but yeah. So uh, impact significance, I'll I'll go first again. Uh, I do want to give the average on the last category, 9.67 between us. Uh, impact significance, I went very similarly. I think this was just as big some in some ways as the legacy. I don't think it's really waned at all. And uh, just to put a capper on it, there's only one other film that I can think of that directly influenced the team name of a professional sports franchise, and that's the Mighty Ducks which is not nearly on the same level. But those were two of the biggest movies of my childhood of the 90s and what kids were doing. So I ended up at a 9.5 again. Roman, what'd you have? I understand you guys are the vanguards of the rating system, so you have to really reserve your full 10 out of 10s. But as my personal experience with movies goes, I'm going to give it the full full throttle 10 as well. 
this is it's going to have an impact that continues way beyond what we've already seen. This is something that in the future you're still going to be able to reference when we talk about genetic modification, uh, when we've looked into unintended consequences as humans continue to push the boundaries of their environments and of their world. I think this is always going to be, I mean, this is a mythology that's, you know, on parallel with the Greek myths that have made it all this time that we still hear about Oedipus and things like that. Uh, I still hear about Hercules. You know, I think you're still going to think of Jurassic Park when you think of pushing human limits and and unintended consequences. So I'd give it a full 10. Yeah, I don't think we've ever given a 10 on this category. The highest that I have on our uh, uh, spreadsheet, we had a 9.75 for Taxi Driver and 9.75 for Jaws. So, and I, I think both of those could be in that argument, but this is incredibly impactful. Dad, what did you have down? I heard once uh, a comment about how John Travolta seemed to have such a, a touchstone with American culture. I mean, the disco movement started with him and then the urban cowboy movement started with it. No, 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 no. If you want a touchstone, it's Steven Spielberg. If you can look back on the impact of all of or of several of his films, you can go to Jaws, how people stopped going to the beach. You can look at Jurassic Park and see how the rise or interest in dinosaurs rose. You can look at how the interest in World War II happened with Saving Private Ryan. I mean, I, I, I think there's going to be dissertations in universities of Steven Spielberg as the touchstone of cultural turning points in American society. And I think you could make a good rationale. So to that extent, as far as impact and significance, and ultimately the fact of we're making more of these and we're redoing them only 30 years later. <sighs> I hate to do it, but I am so close to a 10. I'm at like 9.75 and I'm having just so much difficulty going to 10 because I want to reserve that, but I'm not. Well, my 9.5 is going to make sure it's not a full 10 regardless. Well, I know, but I mean, it's just, I'm right at that cusp and I'm trying to think of where I would go with a full 10 after having made these comments. Give in, Dana. This is the time to give in. Let your conscious guide you. All right, I'll go with a 10. I don't give (laughs) 10s. You know how often, I don't think I've given, how many 10s have I given? Maybe two? No, you've been a little bit more giving in in more recent time. I reserve them for the right one, but I also know that to trust my gut sometimes and just kind of go with it, but... It ends up being our highest grade on this impact significance. It's a 9.83, highest of the category so far. All right, novelty. Let's go with Roman. Uh, You might be a little bit more insightful on this category than either of us due to your background. I I think in terms of novelty, you really, when I approached that question on the rubric, I just thought, you know, what does it do that is something that you don't see every day? You know, that kind of thing. And I... Got to come back to, you know, when have you seen dinosaurs so realistic that you thought they were real? You know, when have you been immersed in a dinosaur world? And to me, the the computer graphics of today are very impressive and worth respecting highly in their own right. But I think that this is going to be the kind of thing that's only going to increase in novelty over time because we don't utilize traditional effects nearly as much as we used to. And I think that trend will continue. So, so I think it's a highly novel story. So 
uh, I would give it a 9.5 out of that. I can't really think of anything else that uh, sits in its category. But I do know that now that that monsters, you know, Jurassic Park doesn't have a it doesn't have a claim to being the only movie that has compelling animatronic monsters. So there is that. But uh, so I'm going to go 9.5 on that. All right. So as far as novelty goes, uh, other films that we've scored highly before, we have tens on 12 Angry Men, uh, some like it hot, which I think might be in a league of its own, if you could even go above a 10, but 9.83 for Alien, 9.75 for The Artist. Thank you, Sarah. 9.5 for High Noon, 9.5 for Taxi Driver, 9.5 for The Best Years of Our Lives, and 9.5 for The Grand Budapest Hotel. So I think it's in somewhat good company, but this one was kind of difficult for me. I think that there are a lot of elements to borrow from. I, I draw a lot of conclusions to another summer blockbuster. I think in many ways that this is similar to Jaws. So the the stretch for creativity isn't quite as there, even though the visual effects are there. This might be his best visual film because even stuff on E.T. and Raiders hasn't aged terribly. Go back and watch the face melt scene, and that just the graphics on that aren't great from Raiders. But I, I do recognize that there are some things, but then you're still borrowing on a couple of categories. And so I wavered somewhere between an 8.5 and a 9. I think I'm going to go on an 8.5, but I could be talked up to a 9. Dad, where'd you come down? Simply because of how it was structured, it was like a lot of other thrillers and horror. But the whole novelty aspect of this is, I mean, no one knew that DNA and, and even conceived that some of this stuff was possible. I remember just kind of almost going, really? I mean, we're that far in technology? That's why I went with a nine simply because of the the medical knowledge and medical aspect of it was so significant. And I only downgraded it because it had a certain element of formulaicness. I mean, it's to some extent, I know that there was a comment I read that Spielberg had thought about, you know, this is kind of almost uh, an Americanized version of Godzilla. And so to that extent, I went down a, a little. I thought a lot of King Kong in, in kind of the same way, and they even reference it in the film itself because the T-Rex kind of acts in that fashion uh, in a lot of ways. You, you've talked me up to a nine. I, I really didn't consider the medical implications or where we were at from a technological point. I think I take it for granted because cloning has basically been around as long as I have that it's not something that necessarily was or probably should be treated more with a freshness that was going on in the 90s than I guess I have an appreciation for. The other thing I'll say is I did mention it before, the battle between science and what we can do, and I guess I hadn't considered that putting it into my ranking, so I'll bump mine up to a 9. That'll be 9 for me, 9 for Dad, and 9.5 for Roman for a 9.175 uh, between the three of us. Classicness. Dad, I usually let you lead this one off. You usually have the most nuanced take. Uh, where'd you go? <sighs> this one was a tough one for me, simply because the the problem was is this is a thirty year old film, and we have advanced in knowledge of dinosaurs and of DNA capabilities 
and what we can and can't do and all of this. So it, to some extent, it rated down just a bit for that reason. And classicness to me, I, I, it has to be something that I feel like it's, you know, you can watch it and, and feel good about it at any point in time. And unfortunately, because there's certain aspects of science, it's going to evolve downward as time goes by. So I went with an eight on classicness for that reason, uh, simply because there's certain medical aspects that don't, that don't hold up yet. Yeah. So you usually started a five. I I've said repeatedly that I kind of started a seven when I'm putting these together. I gave it kind of an extra point for, I guess, some of its propheticness. That debate on what science should do as opposed to what it can do is somewhat leading for me because that's always going to be a question. That That's almost existential in, in the way that it's perceived. But you look at some of the very basic parts of this. There's not a lot of representation in this movie, which we've downgraded other films for. I got to kind of knock it a little bit here, even though I don't think it makes it too terrible. You really only have one woman mostly through the for- course of the film, although you would you do have the girl grandchild. Also, the cliche of the black character being so disposable that he's one of the first to die. Like, let, let's just make it a little bit more obvious in that category. I ended up at the same score you did. I had an eight. I don't think there are too many things that you can grade it down for. We said the visuals are pretty stellar that they still hold up, and I don't have any real cringeworthy moments. There isn't anybody associated with this that we have cast aside. There aren't any big red flags. It, it just kind of lives on its own, and I think in many ways there's a certain nostalgia factor for this. Otherwise, the new modern sequels wouldn't be there. If you're going to downgrade on anything, it's that we have like seven sequels. So in terms of classicness, I'm going to go with you guys. There's the the representation and diversity in the film is lacking, even though you have, you know, a scientist who is uh, Asian American and you have, you know, Sam Jackson in there. I think that it could have been, especially when we're talking about a technological advancement and a scientific advancement that really requires the great minds of the world to be present for that. I would have liked to see more involvement from the world. And there is a certain sense of the the comedy in the film that doesn't, I mean, you still understand it's comedy and you still, you find it to be, you know, funny in moments, but I think it does have a little bit of an aged sense of stylized comedy that, that no longer plays quite as well. And I think some of the fashion choices as well, I think don't, uh, they don't go all in and make it, you know, sort of campy and fun, but they're also not like naturalistic enough to be without reproach. So some of those things I think dated in a way where it doesn't feel totally untouchable. But in terms of everything else, I mean, this is going to be a classic. You know, when you think of classic movies, this falls in. This will be in the canon of films for the foreseeable future. So I would give it uh, 8.5 for sure. Okay, so then that average is out to a 8.16 between us. And uh, rewatchability, we always give this to our guest first. You pick this movie. How rewatchable is it for you? Well, I've seen it 20 times, and there are not many movies I've seen 20 times. I'm, of course, enchanted with the idea of dinosaurs, and I, it just it has a, 
unshakable place in my memory as a child. So it's very formative in my life development. So my rewatch factor, I don't think I could say that anything I've seen 20 times could be anything less than a full 10 because <laughs> I think there's only like three or four movies I've seen <laughs> that many times. So uh, it's got to go all the way for me. Absolutely. Okay, Dad. So what did you have for rewatchability? I had a three. Simply put, I've never been a big sci-fi. I've never been a big horror film watcher. Uh, so to me, you know, this is just isn't my cup of tea. I mean, it's been 30 years and I've never seen the entire film until watching it in preparation for this. I know that there are a ton of people who would look at me and just kind of shake their head, but it's just me. And I, you know, I have to make certain allowances for the time I have available. And so I limit myself on what I watch to things that I enjoy or relax to. And so to that extent, I guess it's the most subjective category three. Okay. So I ended up having a seven. I think some of the same reasons that you had down are fairly similar to my own. Not having revisited this one for a while, it's not one that like stuck with me or was uh, a general favorite of mine. I liked some of the sequences. This is something that I could easily see rewatching or showing to someone else. I like the world building. I like the mastery of the craft that's all there. I think that it might, and this is just me maybe nitpicking a little bit, but... The the first part of the movie, like, I don't think we even get into the thrilling sequences of the T-Rex until a good hour into the film. So there was a lot of setup going into that. And while some of it worked, I think it it created a little too much build that I, I was a little bored at times during. And I thought it was drawn out in a way that some other Spielberg films kind of insert you a little bit more quickly. Again, that's more of a nitpick. I mean, realistically, who am I to tell Steven Spielberg how to cut his movie? But uh, I also thought that the ending was a little abrupt for my taste. That it's just like, okay, we escaped the velociraptors in the visitor center and we really don't know how to end it. So we're going to drive up in the Jeep and then we have a helicopter waiting for us. That That's the end of the film. Like, I know that some people love the crescendo of the ending. I just thought it was a little abrupt. So again, nitpicking... Uh, I put this kind of in that tweener area. It's not going to be one of my favorites. It's not going to be something I revisit often, but it's not one that uh, I'm opposed to revisiting and might in certain cases uh, suggest. So that ends up at a 6.67 between the three of us. We also had, by the way, I just was going to comment that in the book, I guess, remember the scene at the end where Attenborough kind of stands and he's in awe of what he's done. And then Sam El or Sam Neill comes and says, "Come on, get on." In the book, he actually determines he's going to continue to develop Jurassic Park, and he's going to fix it. And he ends up getting attacked by the little um, raptors and uh, killed in the book. So a much different ending. Yeah, I, again, you could probably see the influences of the cynicism of Crichton in that that the creator had to die. I, I fully thought at some point that he was going to go down with the ship during the course of the movie, not remembering how it ended specifically, but I can buy it either way for what's supposed to end up being kind of a kid's movie. Yeah, I, I can buy it. Uh, the audience score on this one, we had a 92% for Google users and 91% for Rotten Tomato users, uh, averaging out to a 9.15. 
That gives us a 9.67 for Legacy. That gives us a 9.83 for Impact Significance. Uh, That gives us a 9.17 for Novelty. That gives us an 8.16 for Classicness. That gives us a 6.67 for Rewatchability and a 9.15 for the audience score for a total of 52.65. And that currently ranks it on the list at number seven, or excuse me, at number eight, squarely between Pulp Fiction and Groundhog Day. So I already asked my one remaining question, Dad. Uh, Did you have any? Yes, I have. What happens with the dinosaurs once they leave the island? Well, that's answered in the sequel film. Yes, I figured as much. And my other one is, isn't it great that Grandpa happens to be independently wealthy to pay for all the counseling and therapy for post-traumatic stress that his grandkids are going to have to have? Oh, there's that cynicism coming out again. All right, so any remaining thoughts for the week? No, I'm looking forward to the last part of the, or the, uh, going into the late summer here, and uh, hopefully we've got some things that people are interested in, and uh, if uh, not, I at least hope we stir people to uh, think seriously about some of the films we've reviewed. If they've never seen them, to watch them. Part of this is to help you be discerning as to how you spend an evening if you happen to be with those who you like as far as friends and those who you love as far as relationships and want to do something uh, jointly. Film, after all, is uh, a joint activity with individual experiences. As far as for me, uh, just closing thoughts, uh, I think this is going to be the first time. I went to see Tenet last year. I was one of like seven people in the theater Uh, around Labor Day, but this will be my first venture back into the theater this weekend. I won't say which movie I'm going to go to. We do record these ahead of time, but uh, it's really neither here nor there. You can imagine what movie it's going to end up being, but I'm just kind of excited for the possibility of going back and uh, the amount of times that I've been to theaters and what we're going to see. And now that we're kind of releasing other stuff, what's going to be available to us again. So it's it's just kind of an, a hopeful time uh, for movie lovers like ourselves. And so I'm just taking a stock second to appreciate that. I'm going to throw out the question I'd throw out on our uh, family chat. And apparently some of the uh, studios were thinking about how to get people back into the theaters and had contemplated re-releasing classic films. So if you're out there listening to the show, email us with your suggestions of three films that if any of the three films in the world could be re-released, digitalized, and made into something more a little more spectacular on the big screen, email us of what three films you think would be great. And I think maybe we could take a couple minutes in a future episode and just outline if anybody contacts us and lets us know what three films they pick, and we can kind of have a list of some of those films. Yeah, contact us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. That's greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. I can think of a lot of films that I could suggest for that. I mean, Wizard of Oz didn't really get life until after it was well out of theaters. Most people know it from television. 
Uh, so that might be an interesting one. But you think of some of the great epics. You said we just watched Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, you could put something like Ben-Hur or Dr. Zhivago, Bridge on the River Kwai, uh, the original Godfather, and it, it's scaled Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark for the first time. I mean, you, you've got plenty to pick from. Uh, I know that it's been re-released a bunch of times, which is why I think for inflation adjustment, uh, Gone with the Wind is still the highest grossing film of all time. But there are a lot of good choices to pick, and uh, I'd be curious to see what people have to say. Thank you for being on with us, Roman. We appreciated having you. I I know that, uh, at least for myself, I won't speak for Dana, but uh, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, I'm sure we have many more films to potentially discuss. And uh, if people wanted to get a hold of you or find you, any of your work, where can they look for you? Uh, I'd love to connect people to Film Reframed, which is the uh, online film school that I developed to help instruct on visual storytelling and composition, a subject matter that a lot of filmmakers aren't taught very comprehensively at all in film school, and that uh, many people still find themselves lacking in confidence when they get on set and into a career in film. So uh, filmreframe.com is the great resource to go and check out our new course materials. It's basically every class you wish you had in film school. And for film appreciators or people who maybe aren't in the industry but are professional lovers of movies and love to know more about how movies do what they do, this is like the complete inside scoop of how movies are working to, on very subtle and sometimes subconscious levels, affect their viewers and how what makes the difference between a movie that becomes a classic and what and a movie that fades from the public consciousness very quickly, the movies that make an impact versus the movies that you go, ah, that could have been better. Uh, so we provide insight on all fronts and we do it in a way where we explain concepts from their foundation upward. So we're always taking people from the baseline of how it works and then expanding it to more complex and nuanced examples. So whether you're a beginner, an aspiring filmmaker, just a professional fan, or even working in the industry for 20 years, the material is always going to be compelling because we take it from the ground up and bring you along for the journey. So you can find us at filmreframe.com. Uh, you can check it out at, uh, at Film Reframed on Instagram, where we post our new course updates. And uh, other than that, you can just Google me. I'm Roman L.C. Martinez. Yeah, and we will provide the link in the show notes for anyone that is interested. You can check that out. Thank you again, Roman. We appreciated having you. Hey, thanks so much for having me, guys. No, no problem. I really appreciate it. I mean, and just briefly, Hitchcock started out doing exactly what you did. He was a storyboard director when he in silent films, and so he drew elaborate story uh, storyboards for every film he ever did. Yeah, yeah, he was big into that. That's a great reference point. Yep. Yeah, I don't know if there's ever any time if you'd like to come back and do a a Hitchcock film. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else, just us and the microphones and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we will be covering our first revisit on the show by Dana's request of Back to the Future. If you want a rehash of our previous work on Back to the Future, we did that episode early in Season 1. Please check it out on whichever podcast player that you use. Otherwise, check out realgood.com or the Real Good app to find where the movie is streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D dot com. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in in our fun. 
can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at gmotepodcast or find Dana or I on Twitter at TJ3Duncan or at Dana W. Duncan. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate Network.